Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I thought that here was a show that was just really easy to do in a post-COVID situation. And regional theaters might look at this and go, oh, it's a new musical? And it costs how much? Yeah, let's let's do this. Talk about song. Somebody has to make, converse. to make conversation. Hi, everybody. It's Bob Oost, and it's Friday the 13th. I've actually found that Friday the 13th have as many bad things happening as any other day of the year. So it's like, fine. It's Friday the 13th. Here we are. Actually, Friday the 13th, and we have 52 people in the, in the room. I think that's darn good. So I count myself as very lucky on this Friday the 13th. I'm Bob Ose. It's, it's, it's Theater Resources Unlimited. It's our community gathering, which we do every Friday and have done every Friday since April 17, 2020, which makes this, I believe, number 104 or 105. I have to double check that. It's a challenge to find things to talk about every single Friday for 104 consecutive weeks. But we're in a pretty interesting business. Theater and artists are interesting people, and there's always things to talk about. And today, we're moving away from some of the conversations that we have about COVID and creating things in, in isolation. And now we're, we're back in some form of live theater again. COVID is still with us, but it's not as deadly as it was. And so I think most of us are a little bit more comfortable going out into the world and being with other people. I'm still all in favor of masking. And I'm still all in favor of people being vaxxed and boosted. Those of you who disagree with that, what can I say? People will do what, they, what people do. I do think that it's for the greater good is the reason why many of us get vaccinated. It protects other people as well as ourselves. So here we are ready to talk about a show that is having a live performance here in the city. A show that I, I was interested in to begin with because I know the producers, they're all friends of mine. But I'm learning a lot of it more, even more interesting things about this show. Guys, believe it or not, I didn't know that it started in Edinburgh. Everybody in this room wants to know how to make a, uh, a show travel from Edinburgh to New York. But there's a lot more to this show than just the fact that it was a, the little show that could. It was a two-person musical that was phenomenally successful in Edinburgh and was brought over here. It was brought over during COVID, so we're also going to look at how that affected things and how much harder, as if it's not hard enough to produce a show, how much harder COVID made it for this show to come in. We're also gonna talk about other things, including the title of this conversation is, You've Never Heard Anything Like It. And that's intentional because the show uses technology, sound technology in, in an interesting and unusual way. This show is Islander, and I'm gonna introduce you now to James Simon and Martin Platt, who are two of the producers. I'm also very excited that Molly Morris, another one of the producers, is in the room with us right now, but she's not able to come on camera. So 
You're here in spirit, Molly, and I'm glad you're here with us. So, Yippee. James, yay. <laughs> so James and, and Martin, who would like to take on the history of the, of the play? Who wants to start? I, honest, honestly, I, I think Molly's the one who should talk about the history of the play because she's been affiliated with the play the longest. And if it wasn't for her, we would have never known that this show even existed. You, but you Molly want... said she can't speak. Molly, can you say anything to us? I can. It's just quite noisy in the airport. You sound fine. Yeah, so I so I saw the show in Edinburgh and I felt really in love with it. When theaters shut down, shut down, I really started thinking about like the philosophy of producing and how we produce and what we produce and the content that we produce. But also I felt much more aware of being fiscally responsible and fiscally conservative. And I reached out to Finn and I said, you know, have you, have you ever thought about bringing the show to New York and would you consider it? And it just began a really lovely relationship and really lovely conversation. I talked to James and Martin and everyone kind of seemed to come on board. And it just, we kind of built this really lovely family around the show. Some of what was really exciting to me was that with a two-woman musical where they create all the music themselves, I felt like this was a really interesting way to create a musical where we were able to keep the budget low for, for you know, what would be a musical, but it, it grew exponentially from, you know, what it was costing them in Edinburgh and that kind of thing. But it's also a show that it takes place on a bare stage and it uses technology. So it's really very tourable. So from the beginning, our conversations included touring and future life of the show. So, so the but, one piece of advice I can give to everybody who's going to Edinburgh is make sure Molly Morris comes and sees your show. <laughs> That's what we have learned from this. It helps. Well, the point there really is when you go to, to Edinburgh, you have to get people in to see your work, whether it's Molly or anybody. James, you've seen other things in Edinburgh, haven't you? Yeah, about nine years ago, just as a fluke, I went to a play which I knew nothing about, but I thought the title was really interesting and it was called The Play That Goes Wrong. I wound up literally stalking the cast after the show going, who represents you, who represents you? They already had a West End producer attached to it, but I immediately called him up and I've been associated with the show ever since. So Martin, when did you come on board with Island? I mean, after Molly saw it, it came back and said, I found this little show, would you be interested in being a producer partner? And I said, yes, because I've known Molly forever and worked with her and mentored her a bit and stuff. I do want to clarify one thing. It does not start at Edinburgh. The right. show, Amy Draper, the director, had the original idea, and it was developed on the Isle of Mull and first produced at the Mull Theatre. And Mull happens to be where the whales live in Scotland. And there are three whales in Islander. So it started in Mall and then went to Edinburgh and then went to Southwark Playhouse uh, and some other places in the UK. But you know, having produced probably 19 or 20 shows at the Fringe for various reasons, the most important advice I always have is you need to already know what you're doing with the show before you go to Edinburgh. Right. No, the odds of anybody saying, oh my God, I have to have your show are really slim or not. I mean, Helen Milne, who's one of our partners, knew what she was doing with the show after Edinburgh. I mean, she, they knew the show was good, and she was already reaching out to people about places in London it could go and other places it, it could go. But starting from a standing stop in Edinburgh is the costs are way too high to do anything at the Fringe, to not have something in the works afterwards. 
it's a tough environment. I mean, there's 1,500 shows. Yeah, that's that's true. Well, let me ask you this. How was the process of bringing it from Edinburgh to New York affected, other than obviously, by the fact that we were in, in shutdown? How did, you, how did you cope with that? How did Molly cope with that? Molly, if you want to jump in and say that as well, too. Well, we really kind of felt like doing a smaller show would be a really great way to aid in theater recovery. But Islander itself had a really exciting kind of life during the shutdown because they had just done their London run at Southwark Playhouse and they were planning to go on tour and it was the tour that got shot down. So instead, when they, when the tour got canceled, that was when they decided to launch their cast recording. So we do have a cast recording that's available, which anybody can go on Spotify or Apple, you know, iTunes or whatever and listen to our gorgeous music. Was but, that recorded during COVID, during shutdown? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was also during COVID. The BBC turned it into a radio play, which is really beautiful and such a great way to experience a live musical. And Dundee Rep made it into a film. So it, even during the shutdown, it kind of kept going. And we were really excited that we were invited to be the opening show at Playhouse 46, which I would really love for everybody to come and check out because it's it's a really remarkable transformation of a space and it's Times Square's newest theater. I want to actually throw that one at, to, to either Martin or James. I want to know a little bit about how it came to be that, that you were the first show in this in this space. It's kind of easy. So a former Broadway company manager named Jennifer Pluff used to work for my former business partner, Dave Elliott, and I. She worked with us for about three years, and she's a parishioner at St. Luke's. And when the new pastor came in to the church a few years ago, he wanted something more significant to happen in the theater than what had been going on there for so many years. And Jennifer was a theater person, and Jennifer called Dave and I originally to see if we wanted to run the theater. And then we spent months and months and months with her and some architects and consultants trying to figure out what kind of theater would fit in that room, which was being totally renovated and made into a good space again. Because if you remember the space, it was kind of a proscenium. The ceiling is only 10 foot six, but there was a a 24 inch raised stage at one end, which meant the lighting instruments were four inches above the actor's heads. And the first eight rows of seats were flat on the ground. So seven rows of people couldn't even see the stage. It was a, a pretty, it was just an awful space. That's a St. Luke's I, I, I remember. That's yeah, it's just horrible. Right. And so we went through and we knew that to make anything viable, you need to have between 150 and 175 seats at the minimum. Otherwise, it's just not a viable space in New York anymore. And I think we discovered after playing around with different things that as an arena space, seating on four sides, we could get 170 seats in and have and a big performance space, which is about 22 feet by 16 feet in the middle. So we worked on that and we worked with them on carving out some spaces to get lighting instruments higher up, how to get a sound system in. It's just, it was like doing a theater from scratch in, in a big empty church basement. Now, it's a flexible space. I mean, you're, you're using no, it with- it's not flexible. Oh, I, I'd heard that it was. Somebody had it's said an, that. It's an arena. I can't, you can't yeah, so use it as an end room because there's nowhere to put people. So set pieces, I mean, the circle and the square is either in the round or it's three-quarter thrust. So there's possibilities of actually having set pieces in that kind of space. How do you use this space 
which is basically a theater of the round. I mean, this show has no set pieces, but you know, it's like arena stage in Washington. You know, you don't have big set pieces. You save so much money. You know, you, you could have a door frame, you could have a little bit of a window frame somewhere, but you don't really, you, you just, it, it becomes, it's about actors. You know, it's about actors, maybe furniture, but it's not about scenery. So you wouldn't do, you wouldn't do Phantom of the Opera there. You could probably do an interesting fan of the opera there without all that scenery. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I'd be better, actually, but yeah. James, how about you? When you saw the space and you realized that it was going to be in the round, did you have any any thoughts about that, or did it interest interest you, or did I, it challenge I, you? Yeah, well, both. It was it was interesting and challenging because when you think of what theaters are available in New York that you could do in the round, they're extremely limited. I mean, there's Circle in the Square, right? I mean, used to have the others Circle in the Square downtown on Bleecker Street, but you know that that hasn't been a theater in like thirty or forty years, or whatever that theater was down there. But yeah, I mean, we're basically down to one, and here's an opportunity to stage theater in a unique way where the audience is close to the actors, the action is is right in front of you. And it's a new way of, of presenting theater. And I think this needs to be, yes, yeah, so someone just chatted, Circle in the Square downtown. The, the ability to expand what theater can look like and sound like, and that's the kind of thing that always I found interesting. And yes, it definitely presents a whole set of challenges. I mean, when we were setting up lights, we're setting up sound, we had to see how it played from the four different areas of the audience. You know, when we're we're setting up our haze machine, because I always say it's not real theater unless you have a smoke machine in your show. That provided a bit of a challenge. And like anything new, you're always kicking the tires when you drive the car off the lot, because there's always going to be things that don't go exactly the way you want. But we've been working them out and it's now it's working like a fine-tuned machine. And it's it's just a it's a great place to see a show. It's a great place for a director to come in and say, here's a non-traditional space. This is, these are nuances that I can bring into a show that I cannot do anywhere else. So, Islander has always been done in the round. That's also true. So that, that was part of the package is they really wanted to do it in the round. And the only other place we could have gone was the gym at Judson. Right. But unfortunately, because of the, the, the horrible lack of sound barrier between the sanctuary and the gym, they don't allow anyone to do more than six shows a week there anymore. So that kind of took them off. The other, the other things we've dis we discovered and did, we're using all LED lighting equipment. For half the instruments, you get amazing flexibility and there's no heat coming off the lamps, which in a room this small is really important. That's great. And, but with the light, trying to find a way to light, where do the lights go to get enough of an angle so they're not flat? That was a challenge. And then doing a big musical in the round, right? With they're wearing both wireless head mics and using wireless hand mics, how to get the sound distributed equally and not have feedback. Because in the round, every mic is facing a speaker. Well, this, this kind of leads to another question I had, I was curious about what work was involved, what thinking process was involved in transforming this from what I assume was a smaller space in Edinburgh, was it? Am I wrong? Was it not a smaller space? I think that's, I mean, the, the original specs for the show was that the space had to be, I think, at least five meters. 
12, yeah, like 15 feet by 18 feet. And ours is like 17 feet by 22. So it's a bit bigger. So in what ways has the has the show been rethought in any way since since the other previous production? I mean, you had you had a longer developmental time than than often happens because you had COVID in your way. So you didn't just move it from 2019 Edinburgh to Off Broadway. You had 2020 and 2021 to slog through before you got to 2022. It's really the creative team though. It was Amy and her team that we rehearsed in Glasgow before we came over to tech the show. And they just, you know, they, they laid out the space and they made some adjustments. And then after, after we were in say Playhouse 46, they made some other adjustments just to open up the staging a bit and vary, and vary positions because we did have more length in one direction. And, and the show got static a few times where it shouldn't be. And uh, Amy Stoller is just letting us know that you mean Amy Draper, the director, the original conceiver yeah. of the show. Yeah. Um, and the one thing is that Amy Stoller, you know, who I've worked with on 92 shows. This show was a unique experience for Amy because as the dialect director on the show, she did a little bit of, of dramaturgy for us too, which she's great at. But part of why we originally wanted Amy was to help remove some of the dialect from the two Scots actresses because some sections were in truly impenetrable Scots that we had to modify, but also our understudies are American. So it's adding Scots to the American. So she was both taking away and adding on the same dialects, which was a unique treat for Amy. Amy, do you want to say anything about, about your experience? You, you can jump in. Hi, I think my contribution to toning down the Scots was actually largely dramaturgical and I give full props to the original creative team for having an open mind about it. it. It took a little persuasion because they truly did not realize how challenging Scots is <laughs> as a dialect, let alone an accent. And the, the accent is one thing, but the dialect differences in grammar and vocabulary and syntax and the idiom, certain expressions that they take for granted really had to be either translated or changed to preserve the spirit to not violate anything that could happen in Scots and but could be much more user-friendly for American audiences. And there was one dialect for one character that where we really had to do a lot of heavy lifting it's called the Doric, and it's a specific dialect from northeastern Scotland, and it's impenetrable even to most Scots, <laughs> let alone other people in the UK and Americans, you can just forget it. So there was rewriting with suggestions by me and refinements by the actual writers. And then full props to the original cast who needed just a few words where I'd say, try this, try this, try. They were right on board with it. They made the adjustments. They were great. And our American cast, our understudies, who are fully prepped to go. In fact, one is on right now, really pulled their socks up. They did wonderful, wonderful work and were a pleasure to work with. But yes, it was a treat to be able to do both sides of it. That's all I got. Yeah, yeah. I will point out quickly that our understudy is not on because of COVID. It's on by prearrangement 
because her sister's getting married in Glasgow tomorrow. Yeah. And so she's gone home for a few days. I also wanted to point out, just so people know who are who think Islander is a two-person musical, it is a two-person musical, but they play over 20 characters. Yeah. Including whales. Including, including whales. We're gonna get yeah. we're gonna get to that in a second. I, so I'm gonna focus back on to James and, and Martin. I, I, I want to go back to a question I asked you because I don't think we, we it was answered. What was the process like sitting on this piece for two years, waiting until you could actually start moving with it? Were, were, were there active things that you were doing? I've had this, we've had this conversation about a lot of different shows over the past two years. Some of them made it, some of them didn't. Some of them could not make it over the hump of, of having, to, having to just stop everything for two, two years and then come back to it like two years later. I mean, I, mean, I, I think it, James, I, I think that, that when the whole Playhouse 46 thing started, and we realized what shape space it was going to end up as that helped jumpstart Islander because we couldn't find a space for it. We didn't know where to put it and didn't want it to come to New York having to turn into an end room show because it would just, it would take away a lot of what they had created originally with the show. So when, when we realized the space was probably going to be an arena that changed everything and sped things up. And when, when in the process did, did that become a, a, a decision? About a year ago, I think. Okay, so 2019, the show closed in glory and it got an award and, and reviews. 2020, what was, what was it like for Finn and, and, and his, the collaborators? Were, were they just sitting there twiddling their thumbs or was there anything that anybody could do during COVID? Well, Finn's kind of a big, you know, a big composer, singer, songwriter in Scotland. So he's just writing music. Yeah, he's going to release several solo records. Yeah, and, and so Stuart, he was busy. He was busy. Yeah, COVID. and 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 the book writer Stuart is a really great Scottish writer, and he was writing. Amy Draper, the director, had less to do because you know, and and Helen, the producer there, who's on our team now, was developing another show which opened about two months ago. Well, I also want to state the obvious because I, I was trying to push some of this towards that. Th this had two actresses attached to it who were de dedicated to it, right? Yeah, they've been doing this play now for four years. Five, how many years? Since 2018. Yes. Yeah. So perhaps there weren't as many pieces that had to be put together again. And the funny thing no. is, they they they've been so in tune to each other, and you think after doing the same show for so long that they would just be sick of it and sick of each other. But when we were doing rehearsals, anytime that there was downtime. They would be laughing. They'd be singing songs. Like it just, it never stopped. They just loved being there and being part of the process. Mm -hmm. And it's just been, it's just been out. I mean, it's so rare you see something like this. But and they, still, and they still love doing the show. What's fascinating about watching them in performance is, you, you it, a lot of the way things start and stop involves having to look at the other person and communicate really simply that you're going to do something. And it's, it's amazing to watch this because it's so tiny. But so Mia Munn, who's, who's covering Bethany Tenek, who's in Glasgow right now, has been rehearsing with the other understudy. And she had to put in on Wednesday with the other principal and then did the show last night. And Kirsty, Kirsty and Bethany, the actors who have done this show for over four years, have never performed this show with anyone else, ever. And so Wednesday was the first time that Kirsty ever did the show with anyone else. She did the rehearsal with Mia. And after the rehearsal, 
she just said, that, this is very strange. It, I was really worried about all of this. And everything was exactly the same as with Bethany, except when I looked across the room, a different face was there. And it was really kind of wonderful. And, 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 and Mia and, and Cara both have learned all the same little tricks of how to cue the other person into, you know, we start now. Because it's, it's fascinating. So again, the two and the two and a half lost years, Molly immediately had a vision of bringing this to to New York right after the show closed, or 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 towards the end of the run, or whatever. It was pretty fast. Then something must have started that was stopped in 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 March. Did 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 were any wheels? Okay, I have to confess, Bob. I know the narrative you wish this was. (laughs) However. At the point that you know Molly came back from that and decided she wanted to do it, and she talked to Finn and Helen and Amy, and they were all just talking about would this be possible, and then finding out if the actors still wanted to do the show, then we had we had to option the script for America, and I would say, and, and Lee Felchon is the attorney, but that that process took at least six months, oh, okay. and it was not slowed down by COVID. It was just slowed down by the normal agents and we want this. No, you're not going to get that. You know, the, the whole process. But that took a long time. And, and negotiating the director contract. Well, that's valuable. That's, 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 that's great to know. So it, what, may not, I, it may not fit into the narrative that you think I want, that you think I think you think I want to, <laughs> whatever. But, but it, I, just, I just basically wanted to know how the process worked. I, I have people in the room who have all talked about I'm going to, you know, I want to take my show to, to Edinburgh and, and I want it to be a stepping stone towards mm-hmm. something else. So you said, said it uh, at the beginning, Martin, the most important thing is don't take it to, to Edinburgh without knowing what your plan is. It, but I think it's the same, Bob. We've talked about this in, in other panels I've done. Like when you do a reading in New York, if you don't know why you're doing the reading, you shouldn't do it because no one's going to walk in the door and say, gee, I want to produce your show. You, you have to have some people primed who you know who you've met who say it's interesting same in edinburgh you know it's reaching out to, to either some of the big producers in edinburgh like uh, richard jordan or people that bring a lot of shows there and try to get some pre-interest and maybe find a small theater someplace in england says yeah I'll, yeah we'll take your show after edinburgh that'll be fun so you've got something on the hop already because again it's, it's such a big marketplace and you know, any of us, when we go to Edinburgh, we open the big book with all 1,500 shows in it. And it takes you three or four hours to do this, but you go through the whole book and you can immediately find the shows you're going to see because they're done by small companies in the UK that you've been following for years. You know, so everybody, the first 20, 25 shows they're seeing, nothing new is going to get into that. And then you've got to figure out what your show has that's really going to stand out. And hopefully it's not like Nymph where people just used to have the most outlandish title in the world thinking that meant something. And of course it never did, except what a strange title. It was also, it also expensive productions at Nymph. People were spending tons of money. Oh yeah. Um, so, so this is, this is, this is, a, this is a good news conversation because what you're saying is unlike so many other people that I've spoken to who were completely frustrated and stopped during COVID, this was a piece that, that knew where it was going and was able to relax and wait for the right moment. 
there, there was no no drama about it, or was there? Well, you know, one. I mean, if was I there was, any was there any hair, tearing of hair or, or you know, mentioning of garments? One of the things that really attracted me about this show in relationship to COVID, which I think made it so attractive to come in as a producer, is because my feeling was through the period of COVID, you've got a lot of theaters, obviously, that have been closed. They have, they've had no revenue for almost two full years. So they're going to start up again. And my feeling was, well, if you're going to bring your subscribers and you're going to bring new ticket buyers, almost every regional theater in this country wants to do a musical. Problem is, you've had no income, so you can't really afford to do a big musical, you know, big sets, big orchestra. What could you do? And I'm thinking, oh, my God, here's this two-person musical that has no band, has no set. You could literally stage it almost anywhere. In fact, one of the things we were thinking about when the show, if and when we take it on tour, is that if you go into a theater and let's suppose they don't have a space in the round, well, you don't need a big performance space. So one of the things you could do is that you could actually put the audience on the stage itself, set it up in the round, and have the performers still play in the middle. So I thought that here was a show that was just really easy to do in a post-COVID situation, and regional theaters might look at this and go, oh, it's a new musical, and it costs how much? Yeah, let's let's do this. Well, let's go to the head cost how much. Guys, are you willing to share what the what the final budget was for the show? Martin? Uh, 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 $510,000. So that's nothing for for an off-Broadway show. I mean, we have off-Broadway show musicals that, that are that are over a million dollars these days. I mean, the, the big part of it, as you know about, the, the, the biggest issue is with the musical. The musical actually costs, the show itself costs $280,000. The other $230,000 was advertising and the reserve because the, our rule of thumb is you have to have you should have three weeks of operating costs in reserve plus you're going to have to cash flow in a small off-broadway show fifty thousand dollars of expenses you're paying in advance when you book ads we got a really great deal on our lighting and sound rigs by paying for 10 weeks up front so, so you're you know it's not part of your show budget but you're spending weekly expenses way in advance. So you need a huge reserve fund, A, to get through previews, and B, be able to pay things forward, which you're gonna to have to do. That's that's just, that's what's really driven up the cost, is just all of that. Well, let's go back to some of the nuts and bolts. There's no set, so you're saving that money. Although, uh, are there props, or are there other are there set pieces? I, I, I think that we had, we, had, we had to build a deck to go over their bright wood floor but, but I think the, the, the deck and the few prop pieces probably cost less than $5,000. <laughs> okay. When you're producing any show, then you know, what, you know what you can spend and you know what you can bring in. You have to make certain decisions about where the money is going to go. And that's what the general manager does. It's one of the things you do. The general man, so the, the bulk of your budget Theoretically, and you'll tell me that I'm wrong, but theoretically, what you one would one would assume went into into your sound design and your soundscape, you know, and the sound technology. Actually, no. Well, okay, okay. I, mean, I know you tell us. Bob, Bob, yes and no. Okay. So the, the the looping equipment, which is equipment that records things they're singing live, and then they layer it live and record it, and then play it back and sing more over that. 
So, but the, the sounds they loop replace the orchestra, but they do it for every single song in the show. They start the song and then they create the accompaniment live. Then it goes into playback. So that's a whole element. The machinery to do that, we bought at the exorbitant price of $900 combined for both units. It's not expensive technology. And you know it's a four wall situation. There's nothing in the building, but we our sound rig, which is extensive because of all the speakers and so on. And we have two wireless handheld mics, and they both wear wireless head mics. Also, is about two thousand dollars a week. And our lighting rig, which is about ninety LED units and control. We also had to put in the house lights ourselves because theater didn't have it, and they ran out of money. They didn't have house lights. <laughs> well, they've got. You know, church basement lights. Okay. Uh, and that cost us about 2000 a week. So it wasn't really a big chunk of money. Here's what was a big chunk of money, Bob, about the sound. Because it's so important in the show. We hired a wonderful young sound designer, African-American sound designer, who had done Broadway, off-Broadway. Everything was great. And then she had some personal issues arrive, arise, and she had to withdraw from the project. And so I had just done... A show at the Mint with a wonderful associate sound designer who worked with Lindsay Jones. And I said, let's see if she's free or, or let's see if they are free. And they were free and we engaged them. And a, a week later, another show decided to go ahead now. So they had to withdraw. Then we didn't know what to do. So I reached out to Lindsay Jones and, and Scott Lehrer, one of the great Broadway sound designers, he said, here's where we are. We go into tech in 10 days and we don't have a sound designer and we have not gotten the show out to bid yet. And I'm, we I'm, some... I'm, glad, I'm glad I pushed. You finally got to drama. Yeah. Okay. And so we went through some names and the designer that, that we really liked and that Finn, the composer, really liked was a gentleman, Sam Kuznets, who's worked all over. Great guy. And Sam came on to do it. And Sam, we got a great assistant for him, ready to go. And what Sam had always said was, I'm doing the sound design for a show in Paris. So I won't be here for the load-in, but I'll be here for you know, the quiet time and creating the system and for all the texts and previews. So it's not a problem. And my assistant can do the load-in. Great. The morning he was flying back, he tested positive for COVID in Paris. So at that point, we had a long conversation and said, well, Kevin, his assistant, could become the co-sound designer, which ultimately meant they both got the full fee for designing the show. And Sam finally came back. I think he got back to town for the third preview. And then, so sound was drama. And then they decided they needed subwoofers. And we already thought we were over budget, but we got the subwoofers because they said, no, it really will make a difference. So and what are your weekly, what, what are your weekly running costs? About or or, or, or what, what percentage of the house do you need to sell this? sell in order to break even each week? Well, those are all trick questions. The running costs before royalties are 43,000. So to break, to break even, if they were all full price tickets, you have to sell about 45%. So they're never all full price tickets, are they? I mean, you, you taught the foundations class for years for me. And I think that we always, we always used to tell people that 65% is is probably the the, the, the sweet spot for break even. Is, it, really, it, really, it really should be 50, 50 or below. Otherwise your show 
doesn't really have a chance. But given the realities of how many t tickets you have to you have to give away and how much discounting you have to do, but but that's a different number. That's a different number. Okay. But uh, but but I, th I think that so the issue that drama. So I guess I guess to the room. I want the room to know if they're budgeting their show and they know what their weekly running running costs are. What is the capacity that they should try to reach in order to break even each week? I mean, I mean, what what I've learned over the years is so you do the budget. Budgets are always based on full price tickets, and full price tickets should say that you break even between forty five and fifty percent. What that means is you'll break even at around seventy five to eighty percent if you're selling a lot of discounted tickets, and that's kind of where it falls. I will say there's an issue that we're facing, have faced and that a colleague has a commercial off-Broadway show that opened recently that we're all facing is that the major critics, it's not just the Tony Award season and those shows, they just don't really take commercial off-Broadway seriously. They didn't before the pandemic and they really don't now. Well, that's also another another conversation for another day, the, what the, the fate but, of off-Broadway. But what it staff. does is it means that, you know, they, they would not dare miss a show the public did. Or Manhattan Theater Club or Second Stage because the, the millionaire board members would come stomp on the newspaper. But for all the other shows, it's really hard. I mean, the, the Times is reviewing our show next week. I won't say which day. A month after it opened. Two weeks after, actually two and a half weeks after they went to a preview of the last Broadway show they covered. They've been doing nothing. And, and that's the reality. And that hurts your sales because we got, we, we got reviews Opening night, the reviews we got, we could have written ourselves. They were the reviews you fantasize about when you produce a show that you know no one will write. And I opened my phone that says the best new musical in New York. You know, but that doesn't mean anything because it's not the New York Times, it's not New York Magazine, it's not New Yorker, it's not Time Out, it's not Variety. And that's just the reality of, of the marketplace for it. So we'll see what the Times says. James, I see you You answered Donald Loftus's question in the chat, but let's, let's take this question to both sure. of you. Do most producers assume that they will recoup their investment and what is the reality? Well, I mean, I can only tell you from my personal experience of investing in shows, most producers will tell you that certainly in the realm of Broadway, only about 20% of shows either break even or make a profit. I mean, your odds are, you know, that's one out of five, which are not great percentages. And that's why when I go to investors, I always tell them, look, this is a high risk investment. Hopefully you'll have a really good time doing it. You know, we'll have some fun doing it. We'll present some great art doing it. We'll make this as, as, as a wonderful experience as possible. But if you're looking to make money on it, you know, unless you've got Daniel Craig or Denzel Washington, or you got your hooks into somebody big, it's going to be a challenge. That's just the reality of the business. You do this because you love theater. You love the art form. That's got to come first and foremost. If you're just doing it to make money, put your money in a, in a bank account somewhere else. And you have to believe in the piece you're putting money into. And really, you know, yeah. we had a meeting yesterday with most of our co-producers, the, the, the big investors, which on our small show is $12,500 and above. And before we went through financials and explained some issues we're having and things we have to do, somebody said, I just want to tell you, I'm the... I, I am the biggest fan in the world of this show. And then all of a sudden, the other co-producers, none of whom I actually knew, I, I knew two of them, said, I said hi, I'm so-and-so, and 
I have to argue with that. I'm the biggest fan of this show. I'm the number one fan. And these are our co-producers who know the odds are they're going to lose their money. That, that's just, you know, when we raise money for shows, we're kind of like in, in English investment papers, there's a very specific high-risk language, like English cigarettes say, smoking cigarettes will kill you. That's the warning in England. And investment papers for shows are the same in England. This is a high-risk investment. If you are not prepared to lose your entire investment, do not invest in this project. Because that's the truth. And the people who invest in theater are people in a tax bracket where sure they'd like to make money, but if they don't, the write-off is good for them too. So it's it, a win-win, not as big a win, but it's still a win-win. It reminds me of something that Kevin, I heard Kevin McCollum say. He had, he's, he claims he has no memory of, of saying this, but I distinctly remember it. He said, when I go to investors, I tell them it's like going to a casino. It's money that you are willing to lose. You're not going to get upset if you lose it. And hopefully you'll have a really good time. Yep. And that's about all you can really offer. Well, I also want to jump in and say that, that not everybody general manages as, as wisely as you have on this. Not everybody comes up with a $500,000 budget for an off-Broadway musical. Granted, you have a lot of advantages. You don't have a set. You're, you're, you're talking about the lighting, which I thought would be a big, a big expense. You're not the lighting, the sound, which I thought would be a big expense. You found ways of doing, doing that for really not that much money compared to many, many budgets. The, light, the lighting also probably needs to be, be talked about here, though. But I'm sure that that is an important element of it. Oh, yeah. In terms I, of the, I, I think part of it as a producer, as producers and as general managers, is you have to be tough with vendors. And they come back with the price and they and you go, you know, we need all that stuff, but we can't pay that price. So what else can you do for us? And slowly you get to a place like with lighting, we couldn't afford the lighting we needed. And I, I know the guy at the company went to really well. And I said, okay, this is our number. We can't spend more than $2,000 a week on the lighting. So how do we do that without cutting any equipment? And he said, if you pay me 10 weeks in advance, that I can live with that number. So we did. So it's all a negotiation. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, part of, part of producing for everybody in the room who doesn't know, know it, it's not just raising money, but it's also knowing how to spend the money. I, I'm, I'm still, I'm, st I'm stunned that, that you managed to do a, a two, I know it's just a two character musical and there's no set, but I still think that $500,000 is, a, ter is a, terrific, a terrific number that you managed to get to. I know that Regina Comet, which is a bigger, a bigger show and had a lot more characters in it and a lot more production things and sets and all that was still done cheaply. And, and Cody Lassen, I think, told us it cost under $400,000 to do that show. But that was in a, show, a theater that only had 100 seats. So you're yeah. in this theater that has, has 170? 70. 170, right. Here's the other huge, trick. It's a big the, difference. The other trick for producers, Bob, and we've talked about this in other classes, sessions and stuff. Uh, this is true on Broadway, too is, you know, we all are going to hire an advertising company and a press agent, and maybe on Broadway shows, they're now hiring five or six different companies to do digital and social and diversity and print. And, you know, that's all moving. But no matter who you hire, they don't sell tickets. They're not going to sell your show. They're going to do the thing they do on every show they have done and every show they ever will do. And as producers, you're the ones who have the ideas. You're the ones who do the research and say, 
this radio station, this group, this thing. Kevin McCollum and Jeffrey Seller are two of the best marketing minds in theater. That's why they've had such success besides choosing good shows. But you really have to drive the marketing and press teams. Otherwise, they'll do good, nice work for you. But it's really not, they're not, they're not the answer to how you make your show a hit. They're the answer of how to take your ideas and turn them into something that might capture people's imagination. And that's an eye-opener for young producers. Well, I know that there are only a couple people like you, like you, Martin, and who generally, when the rest of us go to a general manager and say, how much is it going to cost for us to, to, to do our show? We, we, we usually are, are hit with very high figures. And I, I, just, I just want to commend you on the fact that you, you produce smart. And, and it is possible to produce smart, but let it be said. I see a question mark from Larry Daggett. Does, Larry, does that mean you have a question or you don't know what to do? What, no. You, you just don't know what to say. No, no, that just meant I was so amazed that it was only $510,000. That's like a phenomenal, amazing, never heard of. I just applaud them all for doing that. That's all. Uh, there you go. We're also budgeting. Today I was doing a, not a final draft, but a draft budget for a show we're general managing in the fall which is a two-character, one-set play in a theater about the same size as where we are now. And it's $640,000 because every play has different things that, you know, oh, you're doing that. Well, that's going to be expensive. Yeah, I was sure that Islander had some some hidden costs, but apparently apparently not. Apparently you glided over all of it. I can't believe this, that, you, that you found sophisticated sound equipment for $900. That just blows my mind right there. It's, it's just what it is. It's the same equipment they've always used. And I said, send me the model numbers of these two looping devices. And they did. And, it, and I went online and I bought them. In fact, I bought two of each. <laughs> okay. Could you buy me a couple too? I think I'd like to. No. <laughs> well, it's such a bare bones show. It's hard to hide much of anything in this show. <laughs> And, and yet, and yet, it, it's 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 a very it's a it's a it's a sophisticated show that that does not seem like it doesn't cost money. It's 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 a very full, rich experience. I mean, yes. one of the costumes in this show is a a really long, heavy knit Scott Scottish sweat sweater it comes down below her knees, a huge sweater that was knit by an, uh, an artist artisanal. Artisan, artisanal artisanal sweater maker a, a one-woman sweater company near edinburgh at significant cost because the designer and everyone wanted a sweater that didn't quite exist in the world and so we had it made well good for you it's a lovely um, jumper let me see if any, anybody else has questions eric wants to know if there's a, a video a, a, a video preview uh, there's no video of the show obviously they want you to buy tickets eric but probably a, <laughs> a, a video preview of it right there is one there, i think there should be stuff on our website there right? is go to the website. The website. I, go to the website there is a, there is something you can click that, that does I, I i watched something the other day I and we're finally it. shooting b-roll and a clip archival recording a week from monday oh by the way amy wants everybody to know it's a hell of a sweater a hell it, of it a is sweater. a hell of a sweater so again if you want to raise your hand if you want to ask these nice gentlemen a question or two we we can take questions for a couple more minutes. James, we're nice gentlemen. <laughs> wow. I stretch the truth sometimes. Is the show running past the month of May? The intention is, of course, yes. We're, it, I, we're aiming for it. We're hoping so. Yeah. It, you know, feel free to tell your tell your friends, tell your neighbors. Oh, Amy tickets. wants everybody to know that the show is selling tickets through July right now. Right, right. 
Okay. So that what's, what's really kind of fun, a fun fact about the show is that, that Bethany, who's in Glasgow right now at a wedding, Islander was the first show she auditioned for when she left university. Her first audition ever. She got it. And here she is four years later. And I think that story is on your website. Yeah, I think it is. It's, that means it's cool. So the community, people, my writer friends, my producer friends, my actor friends out there, is there anything else that you'd like to ask Martin and, and James before we wind up? Bilberry, that's what we're here for. Yeah, here I'm for curious. That. It's Michael Erhaber. I'm yes. curious about the, the whale characters in the story. Mm-hmm. If you could talk a little about that, it'd be great. How the, well, how the characters are, how they are used as characters or how they, yes, how they, use, how they appear. Do they, do they talk? I say that because my, my show features a, a, the main character, one of the main characters is a whale. So I don't think we want to say what the whales do because it's so surprising in the show. And mm-hmm. it's a major plot point is everything about the whales is at the center of the plot. I will say, it's giving a slight thing away, but if you see the show, you have to figure this out after the show yourself. But there are three whales in the show. That, that, that's the trick trivia question. How many whales are in Islander? And the answer is three. Mm-hmm. But, it, but it all came to because from developing the Isle of Mull, that's where they have two varieties of whales uh, around that island. And there have been problems with you know, environmental issues around the whales. And that was part of the inspiration for the piece. And also the, 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 the thing about the plot of our show has, and the thing, one of the reasons it has longevity is because when they originally created the show, people walked away with one kind of context. And then after COVID, you know, then someone saw it as like, is this a reference to Brexit because the story of a small island that's being depopulated and whether the local people want to rejoin the mainland. And then people saw this as like an allegory to COVID. And it's like, it just keeps evolving. And the great thing about it is that everyone is right. There's, and, there's, there's so many ways to look at it. And, and, and I was having drinks last night after the show with Molly and Finn Anderson, who wrote the music and lyrics, and Kirsty, who plays Aaron and 12 other roles. And the conversation got around to all the characters that were in the show at one time or another but I've been cut. I found out there was a dog in the show. There was a French character at one point. There was a Swedish character at one point. And then when you see the show, there were sequences where they play 10 or 15 characters in about 20 seconds. Right. And they don't, the show doesn't really even tell you who some of them are. There's always different people, but they know exactly who each one is. And I said something about a character and they said, about a character you could do a sequel with this character is having a relationship with this character and said oh no he's gay and that's his gay lover who keeps saying things back at him they know that we don't know that you don't need to know that but there's an entire world that's been created inside this show a parallel universe well well i'm having second thoughts about paul and agatha and i'm just going to leave that to uh yeah, yeah. Paul, uh, when you when you see the show about, about Paul and, and Agatha, you'll understand. Speaking of Paul, Paul Smith knows a little bit about your background, Martin, and he wants to know whether your your experiences at the Alabama Shakespeare Festival have been useful, have 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 affected you, have a, have you taken any of that into into your other identities that you've had that you've assumed over the years? 
Yeah, I mean, it, it obviously does because it was the first 18 years of my professional life was building that company. So it had a huge impact. And it was really when I left, two jobs later, when I left not-for-profit theater, vowing to myself, I would never go to another board meeting as long as I live. Amen. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, it was also the point when I left the not-profit world that I realized that as an artistic director, I was actually basically a producer. I had to raise money. There were contributions, not investments, but I had to raise money and find the artists and, and you know, create the shows, put up the shows, develop new shows, do revivals. And that's what made me realize that producing wouldn't be that big a leap from what I had been doing. Okay, thanks. Thanks for that, Martin. Anyone else? Questions? Anybody want to raise the raise a virtual hand or just come into the room and and ask a question? Or throw things at us? Or throw, throw bouquets at them. All right. All right then. I'm going to I'm going to, to end then this section of it. We're going to do breakout rooms, by the way, James and, and Martin. If you can stay for a couple minutes afterwards, it's it I think for nice. a few people would love to meet you. And I just want to thank you, James Simon and Martin Platt, for being with us today. Martin, <laughs> how many of these have you done for me now? <laughs> you are you're like one of my go-to people. You're the, the the one person I always go to when I want to find out what the hell's going on. You seem to you seem to know. I usually kind of know. I mean, we're we're in the middle of nine shows right now, so my brain's exploding. Literally. But you and I, know, I know a lot of people in True know Dave Elliott, my former business partner. He's only former. I just want to say this quickly because he has remarried a, a lovely woman who lives in the Boston area. He moved up there and three months after the wedding, he was appointed artistic director of Cape Playhouse in Dennis, Mass. So he's now running that theater and I'm going there to direct Private Lives in a couple of weeks, but so. I didn't know this, when did this yeah. happen? He got married last summer. That part I knew. And then the, the, they, he interviewed for the job, they hired him and he started in January. Wow, I had no idea. So, yeah. I'll have to shoot him an email, <laughs> a belated congratulations. So somebody else had a question too. Well, I think I know the answer to this. Ed Levy wants to know, do you anticipate touring and licensing in the future? So why don't we take a moment just to talk about the bigger picture of, of developing, developing a property such as this one. You, you, you started off by saying when they took it to Edinburgh, they had a plan. When you, bring, when you, when you optioned it, when Molly optioned it, I'm sure Molly has a bigger plan than, than for it to just play in, in New York. Yeah, well, I mean, we have rights for, the, for all of North America and Australia and New Zealand. And we, we can partner in the UK. That, that was really Helen's territory before we came on. So we couldn't really take her main territory away from her. But if the show went to a commercial production in the UK, we'd be 50% partners in that. My, my, my current business partner, who I met right before the pandemic, and we did two shows, has made his career touring and bringing mostly UK shows to the US. Inspector Calls, we, I did the last ship with Sting with him. We just did Everybody's Talking About Jamie on the West Coast. And But what he usually does, he either does those big shows on tour or shows like Islander, where he builds up five to seven regional theaters that we, we tour into their seasons because every Lort Theater, the Equity Regional Theaters are allowed to bring one foreign unit company a year. So Islander with the UK cast is a unit company. They don't have to join Equity. They can just bring the show in and bring it in as a tour really 
into their season. And we play five or six weeks there for a guarantee. So we know we're going to make money. We don't spend money. The tour will cost us nothing because it's going to be guarantees of five to six weeks at five to seven theaters. And that's, that's the model that we use. We have one show we're touring next year and two, and two years, which is going to come on that tour first and then do a Broadway style tour the next year. Okay. Well, that's, that's I kind of figured that, that you, you always have to have something built into your plan. I mean, anybody, yep. anybody who opens a show in New York and thinks that that's the only shot that they're going to have is really limiting their possibilities. Some shows don't make their money in New York and do make them on the road. Susical. Susical is always the example we bring up. Yeah. It's the first Broadway flop that became a hit after. Eric wants to know what else we should keep an eye out for that you guys are working on right now. I, I don't have any immediate plans. I mean, I just did The Marriage of Elspeth Toklas by Gertrude Stein in London. We closed that last month and same time doing Islander. And that's basically sucked up all my oxygen for the past several months. I'm yeah, I'm on I'm kind of on pause for now, but you know, keeping my eyes and ears open. And I am actually hoping if uh, everything works out that I'll go back to Edinburgh this year for a week and just see what's out there. I'm not not, not intentionally to shop for shows, just to just the theater myself and just see what's out there. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's Martin. Well, in the following winter, we're bringing over Emma Rice's production of Wuthering Heights from the National Theater, which is going to tour for 10 months. We're bringing over a dance piece called Message in the Bottle to a score by Sting. It's a tour for about six months. The Jungle is coming back that we're involved with on a short St. Anne's Warehouse and it's going to DC. We're actually, we're doing a workshop right now of a musical called Cafe Society Swing about Cafe Society, which was the first integrated nightclub in New York, which was located exactly where Axis Theater is in the village on that little piece of land. An Argentinian play called Are You There, which is gonna open in the fall. And the big project that I, on my plate is we're co-producing the 35th anniversary production of Serafina, the musical, which opens in South Africa in July, do a year in South Africa, two years in the US, and two years in the UK and Europe. So it's like a five-year project of a really great show with some great people. Well, I, I'm going to, I'm, I, there are, of course there's last minute questions, but I'm, I'm going to actually end now. I want to thank Martin and James for, for, for being my friends and also for being my, my speakers today. I appreciate you guys very much. Everybody out there, I'm glad you found us. I'm glad you're watching. I'd love to have you come and be with us on a Friday. So you can always email me at T-R-U-N- ltd at aol.com and ask us to put you on the zoom list and we'll invite you so you can be part of the community love to have you in the community we do this i say this every week you must be sick of hearing it we do this for free we do this because we're community minded and we wanted to keep people sane for the past two and a half years and shut down but we have bills and anything that you can give us to to help support us would be appreciated our Donate button, the easy donate button is trudonate.com. That's trudonate.com. And I hope you'll join us next week. This is the answer to a lot of prayers of the people that, that, that attend this every week. We have four literary agents coming to talk about how the business has been affected by COVID. We've got four really terrific people coming to speak. So all of you who've been asking me to bring in agents, 
here you go. They're coming in next weekend. And we have a great lineup of meetings on the the following weeks as well. And I actually just, just booked two city council members, Chio, Chio Say and Julie Menon, who are going to come in June and they're going to talk again about art and politics and what we as citizens can do to create change and make things happen that we want to see happen in our business and our world. So that's it. Thank you for being with us. We need to talk about some. We need to talk about anything at all. Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing where we harmonise your mind, body and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together we explore vibrations, frequencies and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Cast.